You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Thank you, Debbie. What a, what a hard text we have today. Um, I want to welcome you before we get into this challenging text. Um, I have a pastor friend of mine who, uh, when he preaches a hard text, he'll have a hard hat and he puts it on the pulpit. It's just, I got a hard job today, so just my hard hat here, and so it's kind of a hard text. I don't have a hard hat, but uh, it's a hard text. We'll get back into it in a second. Before we do, though, I want to welcome you to your guest with us. Um, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer, and glad that you're here. Hope you are warmly welcomed, and what a gift it is just to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ and exalt Jesus. There really is no one like him. There's no one like him. And we've seen that as we've been journeying through Mark's gospel since February, that there is no one like Jesus. And so glad that you're here today. Um, I do want to tell you about one thing real quick. I want to plug something really quick. Two weeks from today on July 17th, we'll be having a church-wide volunteer training. Um, And so this is for anybody that serves in our church on Sundays, whether you serve with kids, Redeemer kids, with AV, sound, creative team, uh, worship team, safety team. In any way, if you serve here on Sundays, we're going to Come all together for a church-wide training that will be immediately following the gathering on July the 17th. We're going to provide lunch and child care. We just need you to register. Also, if you are not yet uh, volunteering, serving in any way, but you want to begin to serve Jesus and serve others in this church, get involved, get connected, uh, register and show up. It'll be a great way to get onboarded into serving on Sunday. So I want to tell you about that. It's super important. It's one of the most important things we're doing this summer, just trying to kind of get to get us all together and get retrained and remember our vision uh, for why we serve the body of Christ on Sunday. So make sure that you join us July 17th for our volunteer training. Okay, the title of my sermon today is Jesus Confronts the Self-Righteous. Jesus confronts the self-righteous. Um, what is self-righteousness? Let's, let's define it. You, you might think, hey, I know some self-righteous people, and that would be a, a self-righteous thing of you to think, uh, if you think that. Uh, I know some self-righteous people, those holier-than-thou people. That's how we often think about self-righteousness. I'm not like those self-righteous people. I'm a tolerant person, except for those self-righteous people. Uh, I'm not so tolerant for them, Right? Um, What is self-righteousness? Let me try and define it. It's actually broader than what you might think. Um, Self-righteousness is to feel or display uh, superiority over another person or over groups of people. To feel or display superiority. I'm better than this other person. I'm better than my spouse in these ways. Or uh, I'm better than these other groups of people. It's to feel superiority in some way over another person or other groups of people. And self-righteousness can be rooted in many things. It can be derived from many things. It can come from maybe an attitude that my beliefs are what make me superior to other people. My ideologies or my Christian belief makes me better than other people. It could be derived from our actions. I I perform better. I'm more moral. I, I do better. I work harder than my coworkers. Self-righteousness cannot just come from our beliefs, but it could be rooted in our actions, that we feel pretty good about the things that we do. It could come from our affiliations, anything that could give us a sense that we are more virtuous than another person or groups of people. I want you to know that there are a lot of ways in which self-righteousness can manifest itself in our lives. Um, I want to ask your permission to step on some toes here. 
Uh, is that okay? Can I do that? Okay, thank you. Robert says, go for it. Robert says, hey, free, free country, right? We're celebrating that this weekend. Uh, go for it. Um, there's lots of ways in which self-righteousness can manifest itself in our life. For some people, it's a moral righteousness, a moral self-righteousness. Um, I'm just better than you. I do better than you. For others, it could be an intellectual righteousness. We live with kind of this superiority of I'm smarter than these other people. These people in the room, if they were just as smart as me, or I'm more educated than these other people. If they were just as enlightened as me, then we wouldn't have so many problems in this office, or we wouldn't have so many problems in this family or in this marriage. Intellectual righteousness. There's some people that I've observed this recently. I think this is interesting. Like parenting righteousness. Like parenting self-righteousness, like, you know, we kind of take a sense of, of, of merit and, and that our kids are better than maybe the other kids because we discipline our kids. Or <laughs> we're not harsh on our kids. We let our kids play. We're not so tough on them. And, and self-righteousness can even bubble up in the way we think about ourselves and we stand on our parenting merit. There's theological righteousness that people can live with because I read this book and I think I've kind of mastered this topic that theologians have debated for generations. I'm enlightened. I'm theologically more righteous than you. I've, I know more about God and the things of God than you. There can be material righteousness that manifests in our lives. So we think that because of the trends that we follow or the possessions that we have or the decor that clutters our home and makes us somehow superior to other people that aren't quite on trend. What about political righteousness? There's a lot of this going on in our world today, isn't there? Kind of political virtue signaling that because of my particular political ideologies, I am superior to you who can't believe you would subscribe to those political views. I've even seen this in my own family, and it's been really sad where family members who kind of forget about grandma and grandpa or, or uncle and aunt that have loved them and nurtured them their whole life, and now that they stand on a different political ideology, they look with self-righteousness and condemn the person that has loved them their entire life. It's sad, the political righteousness that comes out in our life and in our world. One more, this one will be fun. I asked my wife permission to share this, and she said I could share this. There's some of you, like my wife, who live with transportation righteousness, transportation self-righteousness. Like you get in the car with other people, and if you're not driving, that political, that transportation self-righteousness comes out. You know, hey, blinker, you should have blinkered right there. Or, watch, watch it, oh, brake, brakes. Or, oh, these idiot drivers, right? There's all kinds of ways in which self-righteousness can come out in our life. And there are several, several reasons that self-righteousness can get flared up in us. We'll talk about those in a minute. Things like insecurity can flare up our self-righteousness. Feeling threatened can fill up our, uh, flare up our self-righteousness. Maybe getting defensive, this happens a lot in marriage where all of a sudden a spouse points out something that maybe needs to change about us and our inner law attorney comes out and starts defending our case and we find the things, our merit, that we can stand on and then try and diminish the other person. There's lots of things that can flare up, lots of different forms of self-righteousness. But I want you to hear this. This is what I want you to hear. Self-righteousness in any form and in any flavor is simply a human defense mechanism that keeps us from honestly looking within our hearts. That's where Jesus is going to take us in the text today. Self-righteousness in any flavor is just a human defense mechanism. It's a shield that we hold up to keep us from looking honestly into our own 
hearts. And we've been, we human beings have been doing this all the way back to the garden when Adam and Eve chose hiding and fig leaves and blaming rather than honest repentance before a holy God. And so as we pick up in Mark chapter 7, self-righteousness is blazing in the text. When you read it, it just, you just feel the heat coming from it off the, off the pages, and Jesus is going to confront it. Jesus is going to show us that he is the only thing, the only one who can free us from our self-righteous ways. Let me pray, and then we'll get back into the scriptures. God, our prayer is simple this morning. We pray that you would be our teacher, Holy Spirit, that you would help us. We hold up the scriptures, that they would be like a mirror to us, that we would see ourselves accurately, that we would see you rightly, and that by your truth and by your grace, you would invite us into a better way, the way of the gospel, the way of Jesus. Make us more like you. As we sing, God, there is none like you, Jesus. There is none like you. We want more of you. We want to be more like you. So in this time, would you teach us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verse 1, Mark 7, verse 1, tells us that the Pharisees gathered around Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. And they are gathered around him with a purpose, with an intention. Jesus has been doing some remarkable ministry. We've seen that. And his colleagues, if you will, the religious leaders of the day, the, the, um, the social and religious elites of the day, they are starting to get threatened. Remember how he said that uh, being threatened is, is a way that, that our self-righteousness can get flared up? Well, they are certainly here. They're feeling threatened. Um, they've been threatened by Jesus in the remarkable ministry that he's been doing, the crowds that he's been following. I mean, there, there truly has been no one like Jesus. When, you, when we look at what he's been doing, healing the sick and knocking out demons, teaching with power and authority, loving the lost and the least of these. It's almost as if God and God's salvation is just breaking into the world. They've, they've never seen anything like this, and they are starting to feel threatened. And so what the Pharisees are doing, we see this in all the gospel accounts, they begin to uh, kind of uh, 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 get some surveillance around Jesus. Like they want to peer review him. That's why they brought the scribes in from Jerusalem, they're, they're looking for something that they could kind of poke holes because his following is growing and they maybe are losing influence or feeling a bit threatened. They're not as important or they don't have many, as many people coming to them anymore like they used to. And so they're kind of looking to poke some holes here or there. They're surveilling him. They're waiting for him to make a mistake. They're looking for him to make a mistake. They've even brought up back up the scribes. Hey, really help us find the problems in the law or places in the law that, that Jesus is breaking. And the problem is that Jesus is not breaking any laws of God. And so they're trying to find something. And uh, verse 2 tells us that they found something. They found a problem, or at least they think it's a problem. And now they are ready to condemn Jesus, critique Jesus, and diminish Jesus publicly. Look at verse 2, Mark 7, chapter 7, verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. You can circle that word if you're a Bible circler, Bible underliner. You can circle that word, defiled. It's a word that Jesus is going to press into in this text. They, they see that some of his disciples are eating with hands that are defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions, Mark says, 
that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. What's going on here? Um, When I was 16 years old, I went on my very first mission trip. It was a super formative time in my life and my walk with Jesus. I went to Tokyo, Japan, and um, I was with a team of other students, kind of 16 to 18-year-olds, and the first thing that, that happened when we got off the plane and, got, and, and kind of made it through jet lag was that the missionaries who were spending their life there uh, for the gospel set us all down, and they began, hey, first things first, we're going to train you on the customs and the traditions of the Japanese. And so they start training us. They say, you need to understand that the culture here in Japan is all about honor. It's an honor culture. And so if we're going to be good missionaries here, we need to understand that and make sure that we don't break some of their traditions and offend. And so they began to explain to us things like, when you walk into people's homes, always take off your shoes. Um, when you have a meal, where you're going to sit on the floor, not at tables, because sitting on the floor together uh, shows honor and intimacy. Um, this was a big one, especially for 16, 17, and 18-year-olds. When you finish using your chopsticks... Um, you don't, like, take your chopsticks and, like, jab it into the teriyaki chicken of, like, I conquered you, chicken. Um, that would be to dishonor the host or the guest or the chef. You lay your chopsticks down on the side of your table. <clears throat> they wanted to make sure that we understood this honor framework that the people had. And so what's the problem here in Jesus' day? Well, some of Jesus' disciples are not keeping these kind of traditions and customs of the people. And the Pharisees, high and mighty as they are, are ready to point it out. Like Japanese culture is about honor, Jewish culture is all about cleanliness. And there are many traditions that were developed over the generations to express cleanliness. Um, And and it makes sense, right? We read the Old Testament and we see that God is a holy God. And he calls his people to be a holy people. Be holy as I am holy. That's true of us today as, as Christians, by the way. We are called to be a holy people. God is a holy God. But among Israel, even still to this day, there are these traditions that were created as kind of a reminder to to honor that framework, that cleanliness framework. And so it included things like hand washing and lots and lots of other things, Mark says, even cleaning vessels and dining couches. We remember that God is holy and that we too ought to be holy as he is holy. We ought to come into his presence with honor. Yet, these traditions and these customs, as we see in our text today, have stopped being just reminders of the holiness of God, and they have become tools in the hands of self-righteous Pharisees. This particular hand-washing tradition that the Pharisees point out to Jesus was that a person needed to wash their hands all the way up to their wrists before they ate, including cleaning their fists, the tops of their fists. Um, other, ver- other gospel writers uh, talk about this and kind of uh, it was called fist washing. And what it appears is that Jesus' disciples kind of skipped a step. Like maybe they were in a hurry, and maybe they're washing their hands, but they don't, they don't fist wash. And so now the Pharisees see it and they go, there it is. Uh, they broke a tradition. How dare they? And they're ready to set in. They're ready to condemn Jesus. They're ready to begin to diminish him. They found something to hold against Jesus. Look at your disciples. They can't even wash their hands according to the customs of the elders. They are defiled. Yet people think you are the Messiah. And here they are, standing in self-righteousness, ready to condemn and diminish Jesus. Now, I want to kind of pause on the text for a second. And I want to point out something that the 
Pharisees do. They, they follow what I will call the self-righteous three-step. It's the same dance that all human beings dance in their self-righteousness. It's, it's the thing that, that you do and that I do when our self-righteousness flares up and when it comes out. The self-righteousness three-step. First, first, step one is that I feel insecure. There's something that's going on that causes me to feel insecure or insignificant or defensive. Step one, I'm feeling insecure. And so in my insecurity or in my insignificance or in my defensiveness, I find a fault. Rather than maybe being open and honest to my need and the real state of my heart, I find a fault in another. That's step one. Step two, I use that fault in another person to diminish them. And this could happen in a variety of ways. It could happen through slander or through gossip or through shaming another person. In our culture today, we do a lot of this online. There's so much self-righteousness that's happening online. We find faults in other people and we diminish them and we tear them down. That's step two. So I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling insignificant. I'm feeling threatened. And so I find a fault in someone else and I begin to diminish them so that step three can happen, so that I can elevate myself as superior. I'm the superhero now. Uh, I'm the savior. If only others thought like me, if only others acted like me or us, if only others worked as hard as me or cared as much as me or kept the house as clean as me or loved Jesus like I love Jesus or drove their car and used their blinker like I do. And suddenly we feel better about ourselves. We're superior. We're heroic. We're significant. We're secure. Do you see this self-righteousness three-step? Do you see it at play here with the Pharisees and the scribes? Jesus is a threat to their way and to their influence and to their comfort. He's getting attention that they used to get, and he has more power and authority that they want. So they go searching for a fault. They start to view him through the lens of critiquing and condemning. By the way, that's a big part of self-righteous living, is that we view other people through the lens of critiquing and condemning. And then they diminish him, or the people that he keeps company with, in order to elevate themselves as superior. The self-righteous three-step. It's in the text. We see it in the Pharisees. There's another thing I want to point out, too, about self-righteousness that we see in the text with the Pharisees, and it's that they create labels or qualifiers in order to create a kind of us and them category. Do you see how they do this in the text? They basically redesign the space. So people are having a meal, and they step into the meal, and they redesign the space. They recreate the space where there are now people who properly wash their hands and people who don't properly wash their hands. There are people with undefiled hands, and there are people now with defiled hands. And Jesus and his cronies are in that group. They've redefined the space using labels or qualifiers. And by the way, it's important that we just acknowledge, like, none of this was in Israel's law, this hand-washing stuff. So, so they're not breaking any law. They're not sinning. It's all just tradition and custom, like taking off your shoes when you enter into someone's house in, J- in Japan won't get you put in jail. It won't get you a citation. It's just custom. But they've redesigned the space using labels and qualifiers. By the way, when you hear this, when you hear label using, when you hear qualifying like this, it should be a siren that goes off for you in your own life if you're doing it, that you're acting in self-righteousness, or that you're with self-righteous people. It should be like a siren that goes off when you hear 
using labels. We love this stuff, by the way, especially in the church. There's a lot of this that happens in the church. I see it all across the church. A few examples, one that I'm hearing a lot right now. There's a lot of podcasters and, and, and blog boys, unfortunately, even pastors, that just there's self-righteous alarms that are going off. Things like, we're discerning Christians. We're, you see that qualifier? You see that word before Christian? We're discerning Christians, unlike those worldly and woke people. Self-righteous alarm going off. Diminishing others, using labels in order to elevate self. I'm the hero. I'm the superhero. Or how about this one? We're, I'm a spirit-filled Christian. I'm a, I'm, unlike those other people that, that are sealed with the spirit, I'm filled with it. I'm a, I'm a spirit-filled Christian. How about, I've been guilty of this one. I, I'm, I'm a missional Christian. Those other people over there that, you know, they, they like to hang out at church all the time with all the churchy people, I'm about the lost. Do you see this? Do you see, we love this stuff in the church. Self-righteousness, it's, a, it's an alarm. Of, I'm diminishing other people, even my brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than seeking them in, in love. I'm, I'm diminishing them in order to elevate my, myself because I'm really insecure or I feel insignificant or I'm trying to earn God's love and favor rather than receive it freely from him. Self-righteousness, it's, it's toxic. But it's not just in the church. It's all over the world. It's in it's the air that we breathe in this current culture. It's in our politics. I'm not just a conservative. I'm a true conservative. I'm not just a Democrat. I'm a progressive Democrat. It's in everyday life. It's in everyday life. It comes out in our parenting. For some, some of us, in our parenting, right? It's like, it's like a, well, we're, we're a no-sugar family, unlike you people that feed your kids popsicles. Or uh, how about this? Um, my kids, they play select sports. Unlike you, you know, you YMCA people, right? It's, it's, it's everywhere in the workplace. I, I, work for, I work for a Fortune 500 company or we're a, you know, we're, whatever. It's, it's all over the place. We love to diminish others in order to elevate ourselves. Do you see it? Do you see it in your own life? I hope so. That was my goal because I see it in my life too. We are self-righteous Pharisees, all of us. Our own feelings of insecurity and insignificance, when we feel threatened, it leads us to condemn, to critique others in order to elevate ourselves and make ourselves seem superior or heroic. We make stuff up to stand on because we know that we can't stand on our own merit. But because God loves us and because he's come to seek us and save us, Jesus confronts it. He confronts it. Look back at the text. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, they think they're confronting Jesus, by the way. Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? See how they rearranged the room? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people, the, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and you hold to the traditions of men. 
And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In order to, that word establish is the word strengthen. In order to strengthen your own tradition. You have a fine way of ignoring the command, the heart of God, in order to deeply plant your own tradition and then judge other people by it, he says. Jesus gets right to it. He pushes back on them. He says, are you sure that you should be confronting me? Are, are you sure that you are the righteous one here? And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. He reminds them gently, I believe, of a time before when Israel's leaders had led Israel astray, when Israel's leaders were no longer concerned with the heart of God for God's people. And he calls them hypocrites, which, by the way, I want you to know that when he uses the word hypocrite, he's using it in the purest, in the purest sense of the word. Like, he's not using it as an insult or a slur, like we would use it today. Like, you know, when you're, someone's being self-righteous to you, and you're like, well, you're nothing more but a hypocrite. You know, like, he's not using it like that. He's using it in the purest, in the purest form. He's very literally saying, your hearts are not motivated by love for God, but by love for self. He's saying, you're pretending. You're pretending to love God. You're a hypocrite. Did you know that? The word hypocrite, when it originated, it was used as a synonym for stage acting, for a stage actor. It was a synonym of like, it's another thing that you would call an actor in a play. He's saying you're pretending, you're performing, you're, you're performing love for God. You don't really love God from a pure heart. This hand-washing stuff isn't about reminding yourself of the holiness of God and reverence that we need. It's something that you're using as a prop in order to diminish me. You love yourself. You don't love God. See, the, what we need to understand about self-righteousness is that it's not just a bad habit. It's, it's not just a personality trait that comes out in us from time to time. Self-righteousness is sin. It is sin. It's sin that dishonors God. It diminishes the holiness of God. When we use something to elevate ourselves as superior over other image bearers of God, we are simply diminishing the holiness of God. We're saying, we're closer to God than you. And it's our own performance, our own hand washing, our own politics, whatever it might be. It dishonors God and it hurts other people. That's what all sin does, dishonors God and hurts other people. But the thing about the sin of self-righteousness is that it's sneaky hurtful. Um, uh, the playground for self-righteousness is in relationships. Like self-righteousness comes out in relationships, in marriage, in family, in the workplace, in the church. And it's sneaky dangerous. Self-righteousness hurts other people like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's sneaky dangerous because it looks good. Like even other people that you're hurting with your self-righteousness sometimes get duped by it because you're play-acting. It's like, oh, maybe, they're, maybe they're right. Maybe I am scum. It hurts other people. It's sneaky good. You even start to believe that you're more noble. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. It's toxic in relationships. The wardrobe and the props of self-righteousness dupe us. But the intention of the heart is the same. It's wicked before God and it diminishes and tears down others that we are called to love. In fact, I know that there are some of you who are here this morning who have been hurt by the self-righteousness of other people. 
There's some of you who are here this morning who have been wounded by the self-righteousness of other people. Other people have made you feel like, maybe other churches have made you feel like second-class Christians. And you feel like you're never good enough for God because of the self-righteousness of other Christians. It hurts people. It's sin. Self-righteousness. Some of you have been hurt by the self-righteousness of a spouse that's constantly pointing out all of your faults, but never looking within themselves. And you carry shame and guilt because of the self-righteousness of someone else. See, Jesus wants us to see, he's holding up the mirror, and he says, see the seriousness of self-righteousness. God is not moved by your performing. In fact, he says to the self-righteous person in verse 9, Jesus says, I'm not buying the act. I'm not enjoying the show. You reject the commandments of God. He goes on and he illustrates this for them in verses 10 through 13. He says, you think with your traditions and your self-righteousness that you're honoring your father and mother when really you're abandoning your father and mother and you found a loophole to give your money here so that you don't have to take care of your family. You're ignoring the heart of God and so many of us in our self-righteousness ignore the heart of God's commandments and we feel good about it. See, Jesus is holding up a mirror and he's saying, who is the one who is defiled? Pharisees, who's the one who's defiled? He's saying, are unclean hands really the problem? Is that what it is? Is it the exterior stuff that's really the problem? You see, Jesus is taking us here to the real problem. He's taking us to our real problem, to the root of the problem. He's taking us here to the heart. He's holding up a mirror that we would see our heart. You see, the heart, the human heart, the heart is the reason that Jesus is standing here in the text, by the way. The heart is the reason. Human heart, your heart, my heart, your self-righteous heart, my self-righteous heart. It's the reason that Jesus came. It's, it's why he lived and loved and taught. It's why he suffered and he died. It's why he is risen and reigning right now and gives of his spirit to put a new heart within us. The heart, that's the real problem in all of our lives. The problem that plagues us. Our hearts need to be confronted. Our hearts need to be cleansed. And it's exactly why Jesus has come. And when I say the heart, I want you to know that I'm not talking about the part of your anatomy that pumps blood through your body. I'm talking about the part of your human being that pumps desires through your life. That's what I'm talking about, the heart. Even in our culture today, there's phony friends that will give you phony advice and will say, follow your heart. They're not talking about the part of your body that pumps blood through your body. They're talking about that internal part of your being deep in your soul that pumps desires through your body and out of your life. And they're saying, hey, just follow those desires. And I think the reason that so many of us are so messed up and that our country right now on this Independence Day weekend is so messed up is because we've been following the desires of our heart for too long. And Jesus says, look into your heart. Your heart is the real problem. In fact, I've come for your heart, to confront it and to cleanse it. And the truth is, is that if we don't allow Jesus to confront our hearts, we will spend the rest of our lives acting hypocrites and self-righteousness. We'll just pretend our way 
through life. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if we don't let Jesus confront our hearts, then we will spend the rest of our lives acting as a Christian. We'll, this is the word Jesus is giving today. We'll show up and we'll do our worship stuff and we'll sing the songs and we'll go through the emotions and we'll kind of actually feel pretty good about it. We're better than those other Christians that during the COVID stopped going to church. And, uh, and, and, and our hearts are so far disconnected from God. It's not about love of God. We'll give our money and we'll give our tithe and we'll kind of do something that we can fit into our budget and we'll feel good about it. You know, I'm a tithing Christian. And we're not concerned at all about the needy or the broken around us. Do you see what Jesus is saying? If you don't let him confront your hearts, then we will spend the rest of our lives acting. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the same principle is true. If we don't let Jesus confront our hearts, you will spend the rest of your life acting. You will grab every prop and all of the stage clothes that you could possibly find in this life, and you'll put it on, and you'll try and wear it, and you'll try and see if it can make you somebody, if it can make you significant, maybe work, maybe that next job will make me more secure, maybe that next vacation, or that next pleasure, or that next spouse, or that next person, and we'll grab all the props and all the stage clothes, and we'll try and act our way through life, and we'll realize that nothing else can do it. It's not real. It's, a, it, it, it's fake. It's phony. You see, Christianity is about the heart. It's about the heart being transformed from the inside out. It's why Jesus has come to show us our heart and change our heart. In fact, he wants to make this abundantly clear. Look back at Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. That's important. Jesus is saying, Pay attention. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. He's saying to the Pharisees, you're focused on dirty hands, but the reason that I'm here is because God is concerned with dirty hearts. That's why I'm here. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside of him cannot defile him? In other words, the exterior stuff is not really the problem since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Are we sure we want to follow our hearts? What's the lesson of the parable? What is Jesus teaching us? Well, it's twofold. There's a truth and there's an invitation. What's Jesus teaching us? The first, the truth. Jesus says, unless or until the heart of a man or a woman is cleansed, it does not matter what you do on the outside. You are defiled and you know it. Unless or until the heart is cleansed, it doesn't matter what we do. Because what is in you will always come out of you, even if you dress it up with stage clothes and props, even if you pretend and perform, you really know deep down what's in there, don't you? I know I do. 
until Jesus confronts the sin in our hearts and changes it and transforms it, it will always come out of us. This is a truth that we have to come to terms with, is that your problems are not exterior. You know? Like the stuff going on around you is not the reason for your struggles. It might be contributing it to it. It might be bringing it out. But the problem is really within you. Like, let me give you an example. Um, uh, last week, I had to apologize to my eight-year-old. Um, I was uh, home, trying to work from home. Um, and my kids were there with me, uh, summertime vibes. Um, and they were just being crazy. Um, they were disobeying their father. <laughs> uh, hey, guys, calm down, I'm trying to work. And then just, like, continue to just, you know, uh, WrestleMania uh, upstairs the whole time. Um, and so I get angry. And, I, and, and anger comes out of me. And particularly to my 8-year-old. And, and I set him down, and I, and I start to shame him in self-righteousness. You're supposed to honor me. I'm angry with you right now because you didn't listen to me. And then, you know, as things happen, a uh, day or so later, God's spirit begins to convict me. And I, start, and, and, and I have to go actually talk to him. <laughs> and I sit him down and say, hey, daddy's really sorry. In my self-righteousness, I hurt you. I made you feel unlovable. I made you feel like you were the problem. Now, you did disobey me. <laughs> um, but you know how I was telling you I got so angry with you because you were disobeying me? Well, that's not true. I actually got so angry with you because anger's in me. Because there's anger in my heart. And your disobedience brought it out. And so will you forgive me and pray for me? Um, I'm asking Jesus to transform my heart. He's confronting my heart right now. And I'm asking him to transform it. Your circumstances are not the problem. Your, your heart is the problem. And Jesus wants to confront it so he can change it. Like that, 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 that coworker in the office that's new is not the reason that, that lust is coming out of your heart. It's because it's in there. That new house and the need for all of those new things or that next vacation, that's not the reason for the war that's waging within you that you never feel satisfied, that you never have enough. It's because your heart is greedy. Do you see it? That's the truth that Jesus is holding up for us to see. That unless our hearts are confronted and cleansed, we are defiled. And then the invitation of Jesus, in light of that truth, the invitation is to take our eyes off of other people and consider our own hearts. Like, stop looking around at everybody else's faults and flaws and look at our own hearts. That's his invitation. That's the antidote to self-righteousness, is to look within. And I think that there is a reason that we are so prone to self-righteousness. Because I think we don't want to look within. It's easier to look at others. It's easier, easier to diminish others and feel the whoosh of elevating ourselves than it is to look within. You see, because if we look inside of ourselves and are truly honest with ourselves, we might not like what we see. It might make us feel defiled. It might make us feel ugly or guilty or shameful or unlovable. Now, I want you to know that there's actually some truth to that. Like, that's the gospel. That when you look within, you are guilty. When you look within, you are defiled. Until you're properly cleansed. Until you're properly washed within. Until you stop covering. Until you stop uh, uh, 
uh, pretending and acting fig leaves, and you allow Jesus through repentance and faith to do the washing. It is true. But I want to remind you that this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus did all that he did. Why did he do it? For your heart, for your sinful heart, both to save you from sin and to sanctify you from its power. That's why I could share with my eight-year-old son what I shared with him, because I believe that Jesus has actually done something that can help the anger in my heart, that he can overcome it when I look within through repentance and faith. The same is true for you. In fact, I want to just read to you as we close, I want to read to you some verses from the New Testament, how the New Testament writers, they look back on Jesus' words here in Mark 7 about the heart and how they view Jesus' words about the sickness of the heart through the lens of Jesus' death and resurrection. Would you just listen to this? Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 5. Listen to this. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he washed us and renewed us by his Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews reflects on Jesus' crucifixion, and he tells us that Jesus was crucified outside the gate. He was crucified outside the gate where all of the bodies were burned, where all of the garbage was heaped, where it was a place of absolute, utter uncleanliness. And the author of Hebrews is looking back at that and saying, Jesus entered in to the uncleanliness of, of this world, the uncleanliness of your human heart. Jesus went there for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, the, the one with the purest heart, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God sent his son. God clothed him in all of our sin. And he tells us that if you're in him today and by faith, that you've been washed by his blood and that you are robed in his righteousness. You don't need stage clothes and props. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11 reminds us of what's in the human heart. Paul reflects on Jesus' words here, and he says, In the human heart there's sexual immorality and idolatry and homosexuality and stealing and greed and drunkenness. And then he says, And such were some of you doing these things, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that is the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel, that God sees what's really in you, and he invites you to look in and see it too, and then he tells you that he's not turned away from it, but that he's actually drawn to it with compassionate love, and that he's provided atonement for you, and that he will change you and transform you by his grace. He's drawn to it as your redeemer, your sanctifier, your Lord. But it requires that we stop ignoring. It requires that we stop covering it up in self-righteousness. It requires that we stop acting, that we get honest, that we turn to him in repentance and faith, that we access his throne of grace with confidence. What's the antidote to self-righteousness? The same thing that's the antidote to all of our sin and struggles, the gospel. The gospel. See, there is no need... And there's no place for self-righteousness in our lives as followers of Jesus because we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ.
That's all that we need to stand on. God has seen into your heart. He's seen you as you truly are, and he calls you his beloved. Wow, that's amazing. See, there's some application there, but I'll let the Spirit apply it. There's some application there for our everyday life. We don't need to be defensive. We don't need to shame others. We don't need to nitpick. We don't need to diminish others to elevate ourselves because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In fact, I want to close with this. Revelation chapter 19, 7 through 8 speaks of a day. Of a day, he, the, 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 uh, the author says, when fine linen, bright and clean, without blemish and without stain, will be given to us to wear once and for all. And he says, let us rejoice and let us be glad. If you're in Christ, that is your future. That's your future. Righteousness, clothed in it, fully, bright and white. What a day that will be. And so when we feel self-righteousness flaring up in us, when we feel our defensive, when we don't want to look into our own heart, but we want to blame and diminish others, will you allow Jesus to confront it? Will you humble yourself before him? Will you remember the great lengths that he went for you to give you his perfect righteousness? And will we be a people who extend that same grace to others? Let's pray. God of grace, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the invitation of your gospel. That we don't have to hide or pretend or perform, but we can be set free through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us, God, to be a people that truly understand and believe that what it means to be clothed in righteousness. There's nothing for us to earn, there's nothing for us to prove. The significance and the security that we want, we already have in you, Jesus. And so we say thank you. We, we praise you for your great love for us. We praise you for the gospel. And I pray that you help us be a church that stands solely on Jesus. That we are known for our grace and our love and the mercy that we extend to sinners because such were we before you appeared and watched us, that we give grace to our spouse and to our friends and to our neighbors and our coworkers because such were we before you appeared and watched us because you stood crucified outside the city in the place of all of our uncleanliness. We love you, we honor you now in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.